The scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning. As most of you guys know, we are currently in our vision series, which we do as a church family every year. Uh, It's kind of a check-in and a reminder of the vision that God has called Hope Chapel to here in Greensboro. It's it's almost, uh, as, as Todd kind of mentioned when he introed the series. It's like a reminder on our phones uh, that stays in front of us in our heads that, so that we don't forget the thing that we need to remember. And as a church body, we desperately need to remember our vision here to seek the flourishing of the city of Greensboro for the sake of the gospel. Last week, John reminded us that uh, the way for the kingdom to grow here in Greensboro is not to ascend some lofty status among our neighbors, but rather to descend to the cross. And through the cross, we will both be nourished, replenished, and have the power of Christ in us and about us to work uh, in uh, the kingdom here. And so we're going to see that uh, today, that in order for the kingdom to grow, for spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to happen, we must, as the people of God, be willing to lose everything so that we may gain Christ. Um, I'll never forget the day that I met one of my best friends in the world in college. His name is Calvin. And um, I walked into the cafeteria at Clemson University. And I see him with some of my mutual friends, but it was a group of girls. And he was wearing um, a Canadian tuxedo. And if you don't know what a Canadian tuxedo is, that's all denim everything, light washed, and he had a mullet. And he was laughing and telling a joke and had these girls uh, rolling on the ground. And I was like, who is this guy? I was simultaneously horrified and intimidated. 
And uh, I didn't know what to make of him. Uh, but we had mutual friends, and so we started spending more time together. We had a lot of mutual interests. Uh, and come to find out, we really liked each other, actually. And so we became really close. And um, as I was thinking this week about our friendship, I realized that actually two almost foundational things about my life were confirmed by Calvin. The first was the summer after sophomore year, he was living with me and my family in Charleston. And he held my phone hostage. And he said, if you do not finally go tell Andrea how you feel about her, I'm going to text her from your phone. And so, rather than the shame of that, I drove over and told Andrea, and she told me to my face that she would never look at me that way. (laughs) Seven years ago today, we were married, though, so here we are. The second foundational thing that Calvin did uh, for me was, I'll never forget, this was uh, a summer, I think after my junior, senior year of college, we were on the beach one night, having a bro time, crying together, you know, as bros do, and... um, I was telling him I didn't know what to do with my life and that I felt inadequate in a lot of ways. It was actually a very real moment. And um, that I told him that I think that I felt a call to ministry, but I wasn't sure. And he affirmed to me that day as one of my closest friends. He said, Daniel, I think that the Lord really wants to use you and work through you in ministry. And it was in that moment that I realized that. And so when I got married... Like I said, seven years ago today. Uh, I wanted Calvin to be one of my groomsmen. He was one of the most important people in my life. I I wanted him to be one of my groomsmen. And um, he always had had a desire and a heart to work in the music industry. So right after college, he moved to New York. And he was working like 60 hours at a week at a restaurant trying to make money. And he was working 30 hours for free at a studio, uh, interning just to get experience and trying to get a foot in the door. The music industry in New York is extremely hard to get into. And I'll never forget when I called him up to tell him that I wanted to be a groomsman, he said, Daniel, I'm very honored and I would love to be a groomsman. You're one of my best friends in the whole world, but I'm just going to tell you right now, it's almost certain that I'm not going to be able to come to your wedding. I said, wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. Uh, And he said, man, he was like, the truth is, I have to be here. I have to be here in New York. I have to be working. um, Because even if I give up one weekend, who knows if that would have been my break. And truthfully, um, I I was really hurt by that. Um, And I knew he had no money. We offered to fly him in, everything. He was like, I'll see what I can do, but no promises. Uh, the week came, and he didn't come, and he didn't show up, um, and it was tough, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, if I want to be something in this business, I have to be willing to sacrifice and lose a lot of things, and what I heard was, I'm willing to lose your friendship and miss the most important day of your life for the sake of your career, for his career. What I heard is that he was willing to lose everything he held important for the sake of gaining his career. Um, This week, I googled willing to lose everything. And I found a myriad of responses. In fact, what I found blew my mind. This idea of being willing to lose everything to gain something else is something that's advocated for all the time. When I typed in willing to lose everything football... A video came up of Tom Brady saying that you have to be willing to lose everything to become a master at your craft. 
when I typed in willing to lose everything poker, uh, a step-by-step article came up with a description of how to play poker with a willing to lose everything attitude and style, and that's the only way you'll be successful. I typed in just willing to lose everything with no modifier, and man, you would be shocked at the things that came up. Um, inspirational, motivational, willing to lose everything will find you joy. It'll make you find happiness. It'll be uh, the thing that makes you a better person, or it, it won't make. It'll make you not care about what other people think about you. And my conclusion was this: as humans, we have an inclination, I think, deep inside of us, that if we are willing to lose everything, we will gain something. Maybe even something better than what we have. I think it's built into us. It's it's, it's almost like we were created that way. And I think you know this too, right? I know I do. Some of you are here this morning and you're willing to lose everything for the sake of your addiction that you can't let go. Some of you are here this morning and you're willing to lose everything for the sake of your children or for the sake of your spouse. Some of you are here this morning and you're willing to lose everything for the sake of money. There's nothing you wouldn't sacrifice for it. Each of us are here, are most likely, that we have it in us, the willingness to lose everything for the sake of something. And the question that I think is before us this morning is are we willing to lose everything for the sake of gaining Christ? And this is what Paul is getting at here in Philippians 3. Paul, he goes through painstakingly deep detail of all the different privileges, honors, and statuses that he held. But he goes on to say that he was willing to lose every single one of them just for the sake of gaining Christ. That's it. He was willing to risk it all, to lose it all, to gain Christ and be found in him. There was nothing to Paul that compared to this. The sweetness that is Christ Jesus It was that fulfilling, it was that life-changing and beautiful to him. And I do believe that the same is true for us. And and, and one thing that um, I just want to say up front to to all of us, um, I framed this passage of what we need to lose. And we will talk about that as we go through it. But this passage is less about that and more about what we That gaining Jesus is more fulfilling, it's more satisfying, and it's more beautiful than anything we could have lost in gaining him. And I believe that's at the heart of this passage. So because of this, we're going to frame this passage and what Christ gives us, what we gain in him. And we're going to look at three things. So first, we're going to see that Christ gives us a new nature in him. Second, we'll see that Christ gives us a new righteousness in him. And finally, we're going to see that Christ gives us a new knowledge of him. So will you pray with me before we get into this passage? God, um, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that um, because we get to have a relationship with him, that we get to gain him, Father, that you give us satisfaction, that you give us true fulfillment. So, Father, as we go through this passage, remind us of that. Uh, and send your spirit to uh, speak these words into our hearts. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So first, Christ gives us a, a new nature in him. So as we've discussed a few times throughout the series, the reason that Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians was to encourage them to take joy in the spread of the gospel. 
to really find their encouragement and sustenance in the gospel work as they see the kingdom advance in Philippi. But there was some major impediments to the gospel progressing, and, and one of them uh, was disunity. And think about this. Whenever a company starts, whenever a, a new group starts or comes together, there's always the threat of disunity ruining things at the beginning. No culture is set in stone at the beginning, right? Everything is new and fresh. Everyone has exciting ideas. And this can lead to quarreling and factions and disunity. And then that was what was happening here in Philippi. Paul is talking directly to one of these factions in this passage. They were called the Judaizers. And this is a group of Jews who became Christians. And they were saying this. Yes, Christ is the Messiah. He's the one we've waited for. He is the one that the prophecies are about. But... To become as holy as possible, you have to not just profess faith in Jesus. You also have to become as Jewish as possible. So the more Jewish you are, the holier of a Christian you are. So Paul speaks very strongly to this. This is why he says this in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You see, dogs in, in Philippi and in, in kind of an ancient Near East were wild. They were not pets. They were untrained and scavengers, and, and they were dirty. And so what Paul is doing here is fascinating. Because dogs and evildoers were terms that, actual, that actually Jews used for Gentiles. Uh, they called them those terms to kind of distance themselves from them and pagans. And what Paul is doing is he's turning that term that they used on Gentiles and pagans, and he's calling the Judaizers that, ironically. And not only that, he goes a step further and says that their call for Gentile Christians to become circumcised, to become more holy, is not only uncalled for, but actually it's so wrong that it would be a mutilation of the flesh. Paul wants them to realize that they're acting like Gentile Christians weren't Jewish enough was as far from the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Judaizers felt that the pagans in the city were. And this is why he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision. Circumcision is of the heart who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That mark of the covenant is now about the heart and worship of the Spirit of God and has nothing to do with what you do to your flesh. But then he goes a step further, and this is what is so amazing about this passage. Paul lays his credentials on the table. He just, he just puts them out there. He says, if being the most Jewish is what makes you the most holy or the most Christian, then take a look at me. He says, though I, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, if anyone would have confidence in their standing as a Jew, I would have way more. There's no one who had a better standing than me. I was circumcised on the correct day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a tribe to be proud of in those circles. I was so much so, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But he was also, so if he was the most Jewish by nature, he was also the most Jewish by acts. He was zealous in his duties, so much so that he persecuted Christians in the early church. He followed the law to a T, never wavering from it. 
He says, if this is what makes you the best kind of Christian, then I am the poster child. I would be it. And this is why it's so shocking what he says next. He says he counts it as a loss. He says those things, they don't show up on the positive side of the ledger in the black, but actually on the negative side in the red. All of his privileges that came from and could come from being a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul counts as a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. He let it go to gain Jesus. So the question before us all is, is it worth it for us? This is a, at, the, at the kind of base level of this. It's an identity thing for us. The Judaizers said that the way to be the most Christian was to be as Jewish as possible, that the Gentiles need to identify with them to be holy. And Paul's saying, no, I count that former identity as a loss. I count it as trash compared to gaining Jesus. So where do we as 21st century Christians need to lose our identity to gain Christ? What do we hide behind that's keeping us from the sweetness that we gain in Jesus. I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I think to take a stab at it, it could be our constant desire to numb ourselves. When we flip through Netflix constantly, turn to addictions, can't put down our phones. Perhaps it's constantly identifying with being busy, as if being busy all the time will actually satisfy us keep us from ever being truly alone with ourselves or with others. Perhaps it's living or dying on our jobs and our successes and failures there being the main indicator of our self-worth. Perhaps it's our families and spouses and children that if maybe we give ourselves fully to the gift that they are to us, we'll feel fulfilled. I think each of us in our own way choose often to identify with other things rather than our new nature in Christ. But in doing so, we miss out on gaining him. But here's what I don't want to do. I'm not calling us to shame ourselves with what we need to lose or give up. Rather, I want you and I want me to recognize those things. Because if we don't, we'll never realize how much we're missing Christ. How much we're missing gaining him. This is not about shaming ourselves about what we need to lose, but rather recognizing those things so that we can more gain Christ. And this is what I think Paul knew, that in his new nature in Jesus, he was given more than he could have ever hoped for in his nature as a Jew. That in Christ, he he would find the grace he was looking for, the freedom from his sinful nature he desperately needed, the righteousness he strived for every day, the newness that he was searching for, would only be found when he lost those things to gain Christ. And I wonder if that's true for us. That the grace, the freedom from sin, the righteousness we try to embody, the newness of life that we each are looking for, do we believe that it will be found in gaining Christ? That is our prayer this morning, that we are willing to lose those things 
that are not part of our new nature in him that are prohibiting us from gaining Christ. So what is it for you? But it brings us to our second point. We've seen that we must be willing to lose everything to gain Christ, and in doing so, he gives us a new nature. Now we're going to see he gives us a new righteousness in him. So uh, let's read those verses that we've, I alluded to just a second ago. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Of all the things that Paul could have and did ever tout about himself, to make himself feel righteous, he now realizes our loss. And the question is why? We know it's to gain Christ, right? We've been talking about that. But I think Paul realized something else. He said, all of the righteousness that I felt as a Jew from my position of power and privilege was geared towards myself. I think Paul realized that actually his righteousness was a self-righteousness. And after encountering Jesus, he realized that he no longer wanted to be self-righteous. And he knew that uh, so much that he counted as trash He needed this new righteousness that he sensed on the road to Damascus than when he encountered the true and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, that's that's actually instructive for us. We see how truly self-righteous we are and how empty it is when we truly encounter the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is why he says, and what I think is the crux of the passage in verse 9, to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul, who followed the the law perfectly, of the right tribe, the right ethnicity, the right passion and zeal, realized that that righteousness he got was self-focused and was coming up empty. It left him lacking. True righteousness is not about ourselves. It's about Jesus Christ. It doesn't look inward. It looks to the cross. It doesn't look at our actions and how good we are compared to others or how holy we can be or how much we do for the church. But rather, it is by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus that we are made righteous. If you're anything um, like me this morning, you're striving. And if you're like me, you're striving to be righteous. And this looks different for us all, but I do think that there's an innate sense inside each of us to feel like we're right. Whether that's in our opinions, in our actions, in our desires, in our personalities, our tastes and likes, we want to be right and we want people to think that about us. And I think a large part of my story as a Christian um, probably since I was really young in the church, is trying to have the righteousness of Jesus to seem that way, but to do it on my own strength and on my own terms and for myself. I could talk like a Christian. I could act like a Christian. I could speak Christianese with the best of them. I could spout theology. But it was to look righteous in the eyes of others and to make myself feel good. 
That is maybe the definition of self-righteousness. And Paul, man, he eviscerates this idea. He says, you can never be righteous on your own. If anyone could, it would be me. I check off every box, but I count it as a loss, as trash compared to true righteousness. What Paul's telling us is that we can't have Christ's righteousness as we are being self-righteous. So how do we do this? I truly think it starts with our posture. We need to change the way we view our standing before God. We tend to look at our actions primarily and only when it comes to our standing before him. And I wonder what it would look like if we began to change our posture and understanding that God, our Father, moves towards all of us, his children, through Christ Jesus, in grace first. That our standing before God is one of righteousness and not ours, but Jesus's. That is lavished on us and covering us. That we are loved and beloved in Him. And that is poured out on us every day by the Holy Spirit. The primary movement of God towards you and me is grace and love through Jesus Christ. How would that change things for you? And I I truly believe this is the first step to true righteousness in Jesus. It's reorienting our posture to receive the grace of Him and the love of God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit every day. And it's only through that framework then do we turn and look at our actions. Our actions are always indicative of our heart's posture. And so that means also they shape our heart's posture as well. They always must be held in tension with one another. They can't be separated. But if we try and fix our actions and be more righteous without fixing our heart we will fall into self-righteous legalism. But if we only focus on our heart without any practical outworkings, then we fall into self-righteous apathy. True righteousness in Christ Jesus holds both of those things in tension with one another because it realizes that only with our heart set on the cross of Jesus and a desire to imitate him in our everyday life will we embody who we were meant to be before the mark of sin on us. Or, in other words, put simply, holding these two things in tension will enable us to take hold of the righteousness we were given in Jesus Christ. So the question before all of us this morning is, where does your righteousness come from? Is it from Jesus Christ or is it from yourself? And this brings us to our final point. So we've seen that we must be willing to lose everything in order to gain Christ. And in doing so, Christ will give us a new nature. He'll give us a new righteousness and finally a new knowledge of him. Paul ends our passage powerfully. He says this in verse 10, simply and quickly. He says just this, that I may know him. Paul reminds us the whole point of this thing. The reason we must have this posture of losing everything is not to pat ourselves on the back, not to show how much we are sacrificial, not to deprive ourselves of things we need, not to gain happiness, not to be a well-rounded person, but simply so that we can know Jesus. That's it. And in knowing Jesus and in knowing him, do we gain what we are looking for. Faith in Jesus Christ leads to knowledge of him. 
One commentator puts it this way, and it's going to be up here on the screen for you. He says, here we see the main contrast that Paul is drawing between his former life in Judaism and his present life in Christ. His overarching goal is no longer a faultless observance of the law. Now his daily and ultimate purpose is to know Christ. Since the desire to know him is the goal of of one who is found in him, this knowledge is both relational and it's experiential. The purpose of life in Christ is personal, intimate knowledge of him. So what does this look like? Well, Paul tells us in verses 10 and 11, he says, I know that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means necessary that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul shows us that this knowledge is is twofold. To know the power of his resurrection and to participate in the suffering. And in the Greek, Paul only uses one definite article. And he does this purposely to unite these two ideas together into one single thing. Knowing Jesus, to truly know Jesus, is to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his suffering together. So this means for us the knowledge of Jesus Christ, this new knowledge that we gain by being willing to lose everything for him is directly tied to us participating in his death and resurrection. And this is, can be a painful and wonderful thing for us. It means that we're going to have to let some things die in order to experience resurrection life. But man, in both the letting of the things die and experiencing the power of the resurrection life where we grow in the knowledge of Jesus. What did Jesus experience in his death? He experienced my sin and yours. He experienced our rebellion against him. So for us, the church, to really gain the knowledge of Christ Jesus, the thing we must let die is our sinful nature. And this can be painful, Because sin does give us something. It fuels us for a time. And it can feed a part of us that's hungry, but it never lasts. And it never sustains us. We must let it die. But what's so freeing is that because Jesus took our sin to the cross, because he took that punishment, it's already dead. We just have to turn from it. That sin is gone, and we read this in our, confession, uh, in our assurance of pardon today. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. It has no power over you any longer. And when you let it die, you'll begin to experience the power of the resurrection. The grace and freedom that come from Christ's defeat of sin. The power of the resurrection is that you are free. You're purchased. You're purchased by someone by, with a price that you could never pay. You've been given a gift and that resurrection power is yours, so take it. So if you want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, continue to recognize that your sinful nature is dead and let it die and you are alive in Christ through the power of the resurrection. Look at your heart Find those places deep down that you are withholding from him and give it to him. 
Let them die and experience the power of his resurrection over you. Um, we're finishing up here. Um, Calvin did make it. And he's now the studio engineer for one of the most famous artists today. So much that I, I can't even tell you who it is. Um, and uh, as I was thinking about this story this week, um, typically when I think of these illustrations, um, I, I put myself in the story often. Whether it's about me or not, I, I typically put myself somewhere in there, right? Uh, I'm sure you do the same. Um, but what I realized this week as I was writing this is that um, actually we are Calvin, right? We are not willing to sacrifice everything to gain Christ. We mess this up all the time. And in doing so, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. And that's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. But you know what the grace is in that? Is that the thing that we've been talking about all day is being willing to lose everything to gain Christ. But we're not going to do that well. But the reason we do it is because we have a God who was willing to lose everything to gain us. We have a God who was willing to empty himself, as it says in Philippians 2, to gain you. Who left his position of power, who left his position in control of the entire universe to come and walk among us to be man. He counted it all as a loss to gain you and to gain me. That is a God worth serving. That is what grace is. And if we as a church want to see the kingdom grow here in Greensboro, spiritually and socially and culturally, the thing we proclaim is not how much we're willing to lose, but how great Christ is to gain. And the other thing we proclaim is how much Christ was willing to lose to gain us and to reclaim this city. That is our hope. That is the hope of the gospel. And as we go from this place on work for the mission of the kingdom, let that be our cry. Let that be our sustenance. And let that be the thing that we strive for. Amen.